What did the Microsoft employees say to Bill Gates after his motivational speech? I don't know. What did the Microsoft employees say to Bill Gates after his motivational speech? Word. This week, I have a conversation with a ghost. Writer, that is. Lloyd Rang is a speechwriter by trade and the founder and CEO of LRC, a boutique communications firm. If you're anything like me, you know very little about what comms teams actually do. They're those magical word people that write speeches and make you sound better, right? Well, not quite. There's actually a lot more to it than that, and Lloyd explains why. We talk about how companies are responding to today's political moment, the transformation of media, and what that means for businesses, how to cut through the noise on social media, and much, much more. So you're the CEO and lead speechwriter of LRC, which is a boutique narrative and content firm. And I was wondering if you could start off by telling us, what does that mean? What does a boutique narrative and content firm do? Well, it means we're not big. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're small, we're tight. We have a group of about five of us that have all actually come out of, mostly come out of politics. And uh, I'll, get, I'll get to why that's important in a bit. But uh, what we do is we work with companies. Largely, we work with mid-sized startups that are in tech, that are sort of partway through their initial you know, sort of startup period. And we work with them to figure out what their story is and figure out how to how to reach audiences. And that looks like a lot of different things. In a lot of cases, it's about writing for them and it's about creating content. And that can take the form of a website or a blog post or a leadership platform or a bunch of different things. But we we typically work with founder-led mid-sized companies to kind of get them set up and telling their story. Tell me a little bit more about your journey into starting this content firm. I know you've been a speechwriter for a number of years. You and your team have been focused on politics. How did you end up starting this agency? So I started out life as a teacher, actually. I started out as a, I was a high school and elementary teacher. And then one day I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. What subject? I taught history and English, and I taught a bit of theater because I have a bit of a theater background, which you get to see around my place at Halloween because there's a lot of makeup and costumes. I, I also come from a theater family, by the way. Really? Not a ton of it rubbed off on me. Yeah, no, I wasn't very good at it, but I really liked the, <laughs> I wasn't a good actor, but I really liked the tech side of theater. So I, I still get to bust that, that out sometimes. Yeah. My, my mom likes to remind me I also wasn't a good actor all the time. No, I got typecast as the uptight guy all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm the perpetual tech engineer. Yeah. I was a teacher for a while and then uh, actually for about seven years. And then I, one day I decided I just don't want to do this anymore. I wanted to write the great Canadian novel. You know, I started out uh, wanting to write fiction, and then I started working in politics, and all my dreams came true. And I got picked up, actually, by uh, by the Ontario provincial government here in Canada to do speech writing on a six-month contract that turned into a 12-year career. The a state governor is, a, is called a premier, so I worked in the premier's office in, in Ontario for about 12 years, and my job was to, to write speeches and prepare the premier for media interviews and that sort of thing. One day I left, I, I went and I decided to go take a job at a university working for a medical school as their lead communications person. So I worked at the University of Toronto for a while in the Faculty of Medicine, did that for a couple of years, left and went to go work for a hospital to, to get some more frontline kind of healthcare experience and to get some experience talking to media directly. After about a couple of years of that, I, I thought, you know what, I should probably do something else, but I, I don't really know what that is. And so I had been doing a little bit of work on the side, and I thought, I'll just start up and see what happens, and eventually another job will come along, and I'll just tide myself by doing freelance work for a while. 
and the work didn't stop coming. And and this is the the really interesting thing. And I I didn't realize this at the time, but I'd been working in politics for 12 years and I'd built up a huge network of people who had left politics and gone to work elsewhere. So they went to work for banks and large companies and startups. And, and so as soon as I was available to just do f- freelance work, my entire network took notice and said, hey, you know, I, I've got a job for you. I've got, you can do this for me. You can do that for me. And then before I knew it, I had to start adding people to the team. And then sort of three years later, here we are. It's a testament to the power of networks, I think. Tell us, as you started LRC, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? At the very beginning, the first one was scale because early on you have to make a decision am I going to turn away work or am I going to add capacity? So that's the very first challenge that you face. And a lot of people decide to turn away work. I didn't want to do that. I felt an obligation to help the people that I liked. So I just added folks to come in and help me. And then the other challenge was sort of because I didn't start intentionally, I kind of had to. to start thinking about branding. And once I added people, I thought, well, I should think about, you know, how I'm going to scale this thing up and how I'm going to present myself and how I'm going to brand myself. And I, I got a lot of good advice from people. I just sought out mentors, actually, folks who had started up agencies or done that kind of work themselves. And so really quickly, I just talked to my brother-in-law who, you know, had started up an agency after being let go from GM and started an engineering firm talked to a friend of mine who had started a healthcare consultancy and just got the best advice I could about you know how to present yourself. And then very early on, I actually worked with a, a client who was IPOing his company. I learned a lot about the IPO process from doing that. Like he and I worked together on his news releases and on the investor relations stuff. And so as we were communicating his growth, I took the lessons from his startup, very different business. He was yeah, and, in- and I know you've mentioned to me in the past that you hire a lot of people with backgrounds from politics, but your clients, uh, the majority of them are tech companies. You know, why do you do that? Why do you hire so many people with political backgrounds? Well, they're often looking for work. (laughs) That's right. Every every four years, everything turns over. And the reality is in in politics, you have to get big quick. When you walk in the door in the office in the morning, it's it's not like a traditional job. You don't know what's going to hit you in the day. It could be a scandal. It could be a, you know, a terrorist attack. It could be a a minister stepping down, it could be anything. And so you have to learn an awful lot very quickly. And you have to get on top of a story and you have to be able to tell a story, usually a complex story in really compelling ways so that you can be the ones to decide how the story is going to be told in the media. And that means knowing what's going on in healthcare, in education, in forestry and mining, in tourism, in every file that a government is responsible for. So you you learn how to take complex information, make it very simple, very quickly, and then turn it around, also make it compelling. The other thing is governments are up for re-election every four or five years, and your job is on the line. People who work in politics are very focused, and that ability is actually really helpful for startup companies and tech companies who are are looking to differentiate themselves and usually in a very crowded field, and also who generally have very complex value propositions or very complex products and solutions that they're bringing to market. Because a lot of the stuff that we deal with is, especially in tech, is really difficult to understand for lay people. And so being able to simplify that is really important. We haven't really talked too much about it, but you know, you're a speechwriter by training. So tell me a little bit more about what is that like? What is it like working for Canadian politicians, for Canadian tech companies, American tech companies? And what are some of the similarities? What are some of the differences? One of the things about being a speechwriter is that nobody talks about being a speechwriter because you're kind of behind the scenes. There's this illusion that everybody writes their own stuff. Nobody writes their own stuff. So it's really important to have somebody 
behind the scenes uh, helping you to make sure that you don't trip up. It's really kind of cool. It's a fun job. It's weird hearing stuff that you've written coming out of somebody else's mouth. There's really two kinds of speechwriters in the world. There's the guys who can't wait to make somebody say something. And there's the people who, who work really hard at helping executives and leaders do the best possible job of sounding like themselves. And only one of those two speechwriters has a career. Really, your job is to make the person sound like their best authentic self. In the States, you got a lot more room. It's like having more colors to paint with because there's such a great tradition of speech giving in the U.S. and it's so lively and deep. Uh, in Canada, it tends to be a little bit buttoned down, a little bit corporate, uh, a little bit quiet. I often say one of the shortest books ever written would be Great Canadian Speeches. You know, you got a whole menu to choose from in the U.S., right? So in terms of speech writing, America is the show and it's the place to be. But it, it's not just politics, right? It, it's also large companies. And it's Hollywood, too. I, I've been lucky enough to work with some uh, Hollywood clients, and it's a hoot. They get to speak on a really big stage, and everybody's listening and paying attention, and they're looking glamorous doing it. It's so much fun. Hey, do you like our show? I do, too. If you want to support the Startup Stack, the best way to do that is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Also, send dad jokes or if you have them, actual good jokes, to podcast at rocketplace.com. Feel free to send us feedback there too. But let's talk a little bit more about communications in the framework of working with tech companies. You know, as an entrepreneur myself, uh, you know, a lot of tech companies might find that communications firms are, maybe that's an obscure area that they aren't super familiar with. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, if you were giving some advice to our listeners, what are the stages when they're really ready to be talking to a firm like yourself? Well, I'll say this. There is a bit of a difference between Canadian tech companies and American tech companies in terms of how they use communications. Because I know in the Bay Area, for example, startups and tech firms are more apt to seek out a communications company or a communications consultant or even hire staff than they are in Canada. In Canada, it's one of the last things that people do when they're starting up. And in my experience anyway, with the Bay Area, it's it's one of the first things people do actually is, is realize that they have to tell their story. So there's a bit of a cultural difference, Canada mm-hmm. to the United States. But I would say the key challenge is usually that tech companies are usually started run by the founder. So founder-led companies in tech are the norm. Founders generally in tech are engineers or folks who are, you know, sort of technically proficient themselves, who have a product or service that they've built, and then they they want to bring that to market. The challenge is for those people, they have a hard time differentiating between what is important to them and what is important to their audience or to their client. Mm -hmm. So if when you spend a lot of time building a thing and you know everything about it, the process of building that thing becomes its story. And that becomes the thing that you are trying to tell people. The phrase I often hear from founder-led tech companies is the CEO will say, what you really need to know is this. And I usually stop them there. I say, actually, do I really need to know that? I think you really need to tell me that, but there's a difference. And you need to be able to, what I call smother your darlings. You have to be able to kind of let go of some things that you think are really important that don't actually advance your story. Maybe we could dig in a little bit more into the types of companies that LRC works with. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like, what's the typical stage or problem? Is is it always at the beginning where it's like, how do we start communicating our story to others? Or are there other key moments where communications becomes really important? You briefly mentioned IPOs before, or maybe about fundraising rounds or the launches of new products, certain key moments where 
you like to jump in and really help a company? Well, what I love most is, is coming in at the beginning or close to the beginning and being their first kiss. When they're first thinking about communicating, we're the ones that sort of help them craft their company story, help them identify who they're communicating with because audience is everything. It actually starts with not what do you want to say, but who do you want to say it to? In thinking about narrative, and I'll just digress a little bit, you know, a lot of folks think that narrative is standing in the middle of the room and telling a story when actually it's finding the person that you need to speak to and just talking to them. I like to help companies sort of identify that. Uh, and then from there, you know, sort of figure out what the story is that they're trying to tell to their ideal audience and then support them with content and a platform going forward and sort of write all their material after that for them and stay with them as long as you can. The challenge with that is that that's the ideal situation. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you come in after a narrative has already been established. The company says, yeah, actually, we kind of know what, we, what we're about. Yeah. It took us a while. We finally got here. It took us a few years of thrashing around. But we know who our audience is. We know what our story is. But now we're doing this thing, either launching a new product or doing a lift or, as you say, doing a round of funding, whatever it is. So we really need to support that with some additional communications. Or sometimes there's a new leader, like you've switched from the founder-led company now to your first CEO. And so that CEO has to put their mark on the company. And, and so much of what we do now is the result of, frankly, media kind of shriveling up a bit. In the past, you would do PR. You would go out and you talk to reporters about your company. You try to drum up interest that way. It's harder and harder to do that. And the window is smaller and smaller. And instead, companies are finding they have to tell their own story. They have to use social media. They have to use you know viral marketing. They have to use a, tell like, me more all about the, what is the package of stuff you're delivering to your clients? Because to your point, you know maybe in the old world it was. We train somebody up, they get interviews with all sorts of outlets, but, you know, Forbes and TechCrunch, et cetera. And, they, you know, they just need to communicate their story that way. But today it's on social media, it's on their website, maybe it's, you know, other things. So what are the things that you're delivering to these clients and how are you working with them? In the old days, you would have tech reporters or healthcare reporters or people assigned to a specific beat to interview your leader or to interview your subject matter expert. And these days, there are fewer and fewer of those people left in media. It's harder and harder to get through to them. So if you have a healthcare story you want to tell about AI and healthcare, for example, there's kind of one reporter who's an expert in that. And if you can't get on his radar, that story is not going to get told in the media. So the challenge is going to be, how do you tell that story in a, using other means? And the answer is quite often using a blog or using a platform like LinkedIn or using using social, using video, getting a TED Talk if you can, getting into the conversation somehow, not in a marketing way, not to promote your product, but just to be acknowledged as somebody who knows the space and can speak about the issues. And that's, I think, the really important thing. And so you get credibility by just having expertise. Yeah. I mean, can you give me some examples of clients you've worked with about how you really help them amplify their story? First of all, <laughs> the, the process is you listen first. So if a client approaches me and says, you know, I'd really like to be acknowledged as a leader in this area, what we do is we say, okay, we're going to do some social listening first. We're going to find out what the conversation is. So we, mm -hmm. we spend some time on social media, we crawl around, we figure out what topics are hot, and then we come back to them with a list of things that they could speak to. And what we also do is identify where the gaps are. We say, you know, there's a lot of conversation about 
AI in tech right now, people aren't talking about is AI in healthcare. So here is an opportunity for you to kind of have a bit of a niche platform that you could speak to that nobody else is occupying. And then what we do is we support that with some traditional PR with like pitching them out where we can, but largely with just creating a bunch of thoughtful pieces that are op-eds or, you know, LinkedIn blog posts, that kind of thing. Uh, where that gives them some credibility with their peers and you get them in front of the right people and you use social media to kind of amplify the message. What would be the advice that you'd give to entrepreneurs out there who are meeting communications and PR firms for the first time? What are the types of questions that they should be asking you and firms like yours when they're interviewing them and they're trying to evaluate, is this a good fit for me and my company? That's a really great question, Liz. Quite often, you're too close to your own product. You don't understand what people don't know about it. You don't know what you don't know. A company that will tell you, actually, you need to look at it this way, or actually, we suggest that you think about it this other way. Those companies are actually the ones that are out there to help you. They're giving you their best possible advice. You don't want a company that's just going to be a bunch of yes-men for you. You know, one of the things that I have always struggled with, especially when working with PR firms, is setting expectations, creating metrics that we can hold ourselves accountable to figure out whether or not we have done a good job. And I'm wondering, like, how, how do you think about that? Do you think about number of placements in, in certain high-profile channels, or, or do you think about things completely differently? How do you evaluate your team? How do you say, you know, we did a great job with this client? The challenge is in communications that the the ROI isn't always clear and, and the KPIs are not always m- measurable. Folks who look at social media will say you can measure sentiment. I would suggest that almost like anything else, if the client is satisfied, the client is happy, the client feels like their story has been told and they feel that they have been seen and heard, that's the best measure of success. You know, and sometimes there are better metrics, like when you work with NGOs and when we change their story for them and their and their donations go up, they're very happy right? There's a very clear kind of one-to-one ROI there. For the most part, I think it it goes back to satisfaction. The challenge with communication is that it is a two-way street. It relies on a, a receptive audience and you can tell the best story in the world, but if folks aren't ready to hear it or aren't receptive and for whatever reason, you may not succeed. And so there's no guarantees. It's really about yeah. the satisfaction of knowing that you told your very best story and you put your very best foot forward. It's been incredibly wild here. And so I imagine from a communications perspective, there's been so much going on for you and your clients. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you've helped your clients navigate through these times, through COVID, you know, some of the civil unrest that's going on and and the economic ups and downs. I'd, I'd love to hear how you've been giving advice through this. Martin Short once said, the difference between Canadians and Americans is that Americans watch TV and Canadians watch American TV. <laughs> the next door neighbor is kind of staring through our window and, and observing. And so it's it's interesting for us. The cultures are very different and the business culture is very different in Canada and the United States. America was started in revolution. Canada was started by committee. America, you have the Declaration of Independence. We kind of just went out for smokes and didn't tell England that we weren't coming back. Baptist preachers in the States, we have hockey players in locker rooms giving interviews after the game. Like the cultures of communication discourse are very different from one another. Starting with that understanding, I think is really important. Understanding the the milieu uh, is really important. We have a lot of 
companies that actually do business in the US and in Canada and on both sides of the border do business internationally. And you have to kind of attenuate your tone and your story based on your audience. So that's the first thing. COVID is very different from place to place. How different countries, different jurisdictions within countries have dealt with COVID is different. The Black Lives Matter movement in Canada took a slightly different turn than it did in the US. In, in Canada, we have a, an Indigenous population that's been poorly treated historically and currently. And so our story is slightly different that way too. What I've noticed works and what I think the key thing to remember is in all communications around things that are thorny and things that are challenging and things that are systemic is authenticity. You know, while authenticity isn't everything, you can't do anything without it. So that is to say, if your company wants to go out and speak about systemic racism and wants to take a position on that, then you better follow up with some action. Like you better live it. You better be authentic about it. You better be committed to changing and following the story over the long term. Otherwise, it's just hollow and it's just words. And it's like that with everything. The more authentic you are, the better it is. And sometimes that means authentically staying out of it. If you don't have anything to speak into, don't say anything. Like that is always an option and people forget that. You know, as a CEO and and watching other companies navigate the current times, I mean, we have a very charged, you know, sometimes deeply divided country and society right now. You know, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. You know, people can be on on very different sides. And I imagine that some of your clients, you know, sure, you can give them advice about being authentic, but they worry probably about saying the wrong thing. As a communications expert, how do you help them navigate that? Is it just about being authentic to their own story and trying to stay out of more divided issues? Or is it a lot of CEOs that I see in Silicon Valley, they will get attacked for even staying out of the issues, for not saying something at all. And so I wonder how, what advice would you give to those CEOs? Everything starts with social listening. So right now... What is social media listening? What does that mean? So it means uh, using uh, various tools, and there are lots of them out there on the marketplace right now, to scrape along through Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn to find out what kind of conversations are out there right now in the ecosystem, and then figuring out how to speak into them. Because it's like listening in on a giant conversation. And if you know what people are talking about, uh, you can enter the conversation more easily. And that's really important to do. So one of the things I would say is that You have to live out the mission of your company, whatever that is, or your organization. And so what you do has to grow out of the sense of mission that you have. This is the thing that I I do run into. A lot of founder-led companies, folks with their hearts in the right place and really truly trying to do the right thing. And again, our clients, uh, we like to work with these change the world clients and they're people with big hearts and who want to make an impact. And so sometimes they want to make a very big impression and say something very profound on a, on a large stage when in actual fact, the, the biggest change that they can make would be small and internal, would be changing the culture within the company, would, would be looking at their own work and, and asking what they can do differently, as opposed to making a big grand sort of external communication. It's a lot of it can be turned inside and can be discussions that you can have with your own people. And that can be incredibly consequential. It can be the most important thing actually. So, and secondly, I would say you don't have to show up for every argument that you're invited to. Not everything is your purview. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I haven't thought that through. Yeah. If somebody sticks a microphone in a client's face, I say, you have an option to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question, but I, I simply can't answer that, but I can think about it and get back to you. I'm reading a really great book, actually, though, in terms of bridging the gap, because you also asked, how do you 
how to communicate with people in a charged environment and how do you bring people together. A book I'm reading right now called The Catalyst by Jonah Berger talks about that. He's one of my favorite authors. Isn't he amazing? Amazing. His marketing book, his I think his first book was called Contagious. And it just, honestly, it, it changed my life in terms of how to, how to think about marketing and getting your story out there. I thought it was just unbelievably good. And, and I'm working my way through that because I started, I started at the end. So I started, I think the catalyst is mo- his most recent. The thesis is people do want to change. You just have to remove the barriers to them changing. And so being a catalyst is all about asking the question, you know, what would it take for you to think differently? And then finding that thing that's the impediment to change and getting that out of the way. So really, it's an interesting way of looking at persuasion. And actually, that's the other thing. I often say this in the context of politics. You know, you can save yourself a lot of time and effort in life and in the world when you're starting an argument with somebody and you ask the question, so what would it take to change your mind? What can I give you that would change your mind? And if they say nothing, you say, it's great talking to you. (laughs) I'm going to step away because this is just going to be aggravating otherwise. But if they say, well, it would take evidence or it would take this or it would take that. Okay, well, that's an entry point into the conversation. Well, I like that. I think that, you know, that's really good tactical advice. In a deeply divided culture, maybe how to think about communicating to both sides. And I also like the advice you were giving about, it's okay to say you don't know. It's okay to not engage in every single topic. And I think that's all really good advice. The last question I want to ask you is, if you could go back 20 years and give yourself advice, what would be the advice that you would give to yourself, whether that's 20 years or even three years ago as you're starting LRC, what would be the advice that you would give to yourself knowing what you know today? I think there's two things I would say to my former self. One is your skills are transferable and never forget that and invest in your skills. So the fact that I was a teacher before in a previous life means I have leadership skills, means I can multitask, means I can evaluate both the past, the present, and the future at the same time. Those are transferable skills to business. So so always invest your time in your skills. And the second thing I would say is networks are everything. You know, what I've done sort of accidentally through my career is build a great network. It's the kind of thing that Rocket Place has done intentionally. And it's the best way to find clients you love and, and to be loved back is through networking and through making those relationships happen. And not to pump your tires, but that's the, the Rocket Place advantage as well. It allows you folks to connect people who otherwise wouldn't have found each other and help them fall in love. It's great. Thank you for saying that. That is exactly what we're trying to do at Rocket Place is connect, you know, excellent companies with world-class service providers, you know, all around, not just the country, but globally. Well, listen, thanks, Lloyd, for for joining us today. This was great. I loved learning more about LRC and your story. Woo-hoo. For more on our conversation today, visit www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. We upload a new episode every week. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. Thanks again for joining us. See you next week. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.